right, so welcome to Combustible. This is, uh, we've got a special guest today, Lance LaRusso, who is an attorney. Uh, he's a civil litigator with law enforcement and EMT background. He focuses his practice on critical incident and media response, catastrophic personal injury, and wrongful death cases. He's the general counsel to the Georgia State Lodge of Fraternal Order of Police, represents firefighter organizations, and has represented over 90 first responders in on-duty shootings and critical incidents. He's lectured on deadly force and other topics to law enforcement officers from more than 25 states, several federal federal agencies, and international police associations. He's a firearms instructor for over 25 years, a use of force expert in criminal cases brought against law enforcement officers. He's the author of several books, When Cops Kill, about use of force incidents and Blue News covering police and media response. They were written to raise money for law enforcement charities and to date have raised over $25,000 that was donated to assist officers, their families, and their, uh, their survivors. He's written two fiction books and has a new book out, uh, due out in May. Welcome, Lance. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you uh, not necessarily coming out because this is we're all COVIDed up, but uh, not us really. we appreciate you joining we're us. We're just practicing our social distancing. We are absolutely. Just- for some of us, it's responsibility. For other, it's others. It's a coronation. But whatever reason, we're all doing what we're supposed to do. <laughs> coronation. I hadn't heard that one yet. So, uh, some of our listeners, if they've gone to the website. Uh, and have perused our reading list, know that uh, your book, When Cops Kill, is on my reading list. My uh, father-in-law gave that to me a few years ago. And I make the case uh, in my description of the book that it, it, even though it's When Cops Kill, it's very uh, apropos to fire firefighting. Uh, you discuss a lot of stuff that uh, applies. But the, the thing that kind of grabbed me that I want to kind of start off with is that you, you used to be a police officer, if that's correct. Yep, absolutely. I was a cop for a long time. I'm still uh, sworn in one capacity or another, uh, in one capacity or another, I guess, since about 1988. I've been carrying a badge and um, basically accepting the responsibility to put my life ahead of, uh, you know, my others' lives ahead of mine, just like y'all do every day. So, you know, the whole purpose of When Cops Kill, and I was uh, honored, but also um, not surprised to see it on the reading list because somebody who's been there on the front lines understands whether it's a critical shooting, um, whether it's a critical incident involving a vehicle wreck where, you know, an officer is going through an intersection, hit somebody. The, the book is about the nexus of decision-making that causes people to second guess for months what took place in a fraction of a second and firefighters and EMTs and law enforcement go through that absolutely every day. So it does have a lot of uh, connection for anybody in public safety that is placed in a decision of making a life or death choice and truly a life or death choice for themselves or somebody else and only to be second guessed by a court system uh, for years. So you, you, with this public safety background, obviously you've got a perspective on it that most lawyers don't have, but what, what made you move from public safety uh, as your primary to uh, being an attorney? The first thing really is I just love the law. You know, they say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. And, you know, whenever I think of uh, firefighters and police officers, I I think of the theory that uh, everybody wants to be a warrior until it's time to do warrior stuff. Well, you know, if people knew the physicality of being a firefighter or just an EMS or the risk that you're exposed to, they really wouldn't want to do it. But the law stuff always just attracted me. I taught law in the academy, so far as search and seizure and, and uh, interviews and interrogations. Um, even traffic law I tried to make interesting, which is enough to put you in, a, in an <laughs> anesthesia-induced sleep so people could take out your appendix. But um, I can assure you that I, I was very happy, and I've never looked back the day I decided to follow that, that dream and that spark in me. Right. And now I get to help represent heroes, so what, what could be better? Right. Well, and, you know, I, I don't know if some of our listeners might have connected the dots, but you, uh, I know the last time I saw you on the television, you were sitting next to Danny Dwyer, which was, you know, has been in the, of course, in the news around Atlanta. And we don't necessarily want to go into that because, uh, you know, it's still so fresh. And I'm sure there's stuff that uh, you've got that you can't necessarily talk about that. But, um, well, I, w- I will say this. Um, sitting next to Paul Gertis on Fox News. Um, I've done between 550 and 600 media interviews. 
But when you take someone like Gertis, who's willing to stand up for his folks and and face a camera in front of several million uh, viewers, uh, that's amazing. But like I've always said to people, if you don't stand behind public safety, please stand in front of them. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, standing up for someone like Danny Dwyer is one of the reasons I get up in the morning. All right. So separate from Danny Dwyer, uh, separate from that whole, that thing, because I want to make sure that we're not, we're not tying what I'm about to ask you to anything regard, you know, related to that. What is the biggest legal mistake that you see firefighters making? Not taking a time out. And I think everybody that listens to this will understand because what I've seen nationally and and really internationally, just about all firefighters are EMTs or or have, you know, close to an EMT education. I know certainly in most metro areas, there are basic EMTs to start with. In some cases, they're intermediates as well. So in the operating room, and some of you may have been there, some not, but I represented doctors and hospitals for about 18 years. In the operating room, there is a point that there is no rank in the OR nurses, doctors, technicians, scrub techs, the person who's in there making sure that anything that falls on the floor is picked up and disposed of, the anesthesiologist, they are all on one level playing field during a period called a timeout. And someone will read out the name of the patient and somebody will verify. The surgery they're doing, somebody will verify it. The uh, location of the surgery, is it a right knee or a left knee? the equipment that they have present for that surgery is correct. All of those things are read out in that timeout period with all of those, all of the the numerous parts that have come together for that surgery. And remember the definition of minor surgery is what somebody else has. I don't care what kind of surgery it is. All right. Right. That timeout must take place before the first decision is made. And what I see over and over and over again is if these agencies would take a timeout, take a breather, tank rank off the table, because it doesn't matter who you're, who you are in terms of the rank on your on your lapels. What matters is who you are inside of a leader. And if this is truly a disciplinary situation, what's the best way to fix it? You know, you can train most things, uh, most errors into good performance and no one has ever sued you for being trained too much. All right. So I'm, you're speaking of a timeout, not necessarily as we're approaching a scene, right? I mean, we're talking about. No, this is after something's happened and you're, you're going back in the, in the after action plan when you're going back and saying, yeah, let me be, be clear. So you've gotten information that somebody may have made a mistake, did something outside of policy or whatever it is, before you decide that you're going to fire, suspend, do whatever you're going to do to somebody, take a time out, take a breather, and realize that, you know, it's, it's not about you. You know, so far as on a scene, that happens already. Yeah, there's times when a captain or a lieutenant yells at somebody and tells them to go do X, Y, Z, but you guys do that time out now from what I've seen over and over again immediately on the scene as you're arriving at the scene when you come up and you do that quick assessment of what's going on you're already doing that and i've seen over and over again in fire service that people are willing to accept input on a scene from people of either lesser ranks or people with more experience that just you know aren't in a leadership position that day and and the best example i'll give you is this you know you could have somebody who's a lieutenant or somebody who's an engineer riding in the right front seat of a fire truck if the captain's not available. So you guys already show that timeout so far as pre-incident. I'm talking about post-incident when something's happened and everybody's jumping on a policy violation. Okay. Yeah, Lance, this is Hatch. Uh, I I agree with you. I think a lot of times people let that emotion get a little bit of the better of them and they, it's never going to work out well if you use emotion when you're going to discipline. It just feeds into whatever's happening. I had a, a supervisor who would ask me to do things like that, you know, file a complaint or, you know, do a letter of counseling on somebody. And then a couple of shifts later, he'd come back to me. He's like, ah, you know what? That's a good guy. Let's listen to you. I'm like, I've already done it. You asked me to do it. So I, I put a 72 hour psychiatric hold on anything he asked me to do. I, I wouldn't do anything for 72 hours. Mandatory timeout. Yeah, yeah, it was a mandatory timeout with him. Anything he asked me to do. Otherwise, it was making me look stupid. I, I That's funny you say, uh, talk about the timeout because i'm currently in timeout you guys don't know that right now 
uh, I had a situation that popped up yesterday, and I thought, I'm going to need to wait on this for just a little bit. So you gave yourself take, a self-imposed timeout? I a self-imposed timeout, and I want to talk to the crew members prior to. But You're socially distancing um, yourself from the issue. But <laughs> I, it was just so weird because even yesterday, I, I thought to myself, I'm going to need to woe up on this one right here for just a second. Why? Well, because I found myself uh, feeling some kind of way about You got it. emotional about it. Yeah. And, uh, and I, good thing is I was able to recognize it and I, and I told myself, okay, I'm just going to stop. This is going to be like this, uh, crime of passion thing if I'm not careful. So I'm just going to woe up. Right. So, yeah, I don't think leadership and emotion, you know, necessarily work out that well No. in disregard in discipline. You know, and, and I'll give you an example. We, we did a survey. We had a, an officer who was disciplined in a, in a very large department. Um, he was disciplined and we did an open records request for everybody who was disciplined for insubordination. Now, uh, you know, I just spoke to the Georgia Association of Chiefs of Police. So it, it's kind of interesting. I, I have this kind of weird role. Um, people don't have a problem with me talking to them. Sometimes they don't want me to sit across from them. Uh, but, you know, I teach at the command college, the Georgia command college. So I'm trying to keep firefighters, um, law enforcement and EMS officials out of court. Uh, which cuts into my bottom line. I don't know what I'm thinking, but the bottom line is I would rather they just go along and do their jobs. But, you know, and I tell them all the time, it's not a matter of um, statistics. It's not a matter of can you write someone up. So the insubordination thing comes up all the time. What's insubordination? Insubordination is not you said something that made the chief mad. So we did a, a, a an open records request. How many people have been disciplined in this agency for insubordination in the past? I think it was three years. And it was several pages on a, uh, an Excel spreadsheet. Wow. Now this agency doesn't have 30,000 people like the NYPD. If you've got 75 people, I think it was 75 people that were disciplined, um, in the past three years and a good 25 of them had some sort of insubordination hooked to it. You have a leadership problem. Yeah. Either that or your selection tools suck. I mean, you shouldn't be hiring people who can't follow direction or not only can't follow direction because that's not insubordination, willfully disobey orders. That's what's so insubordination. Was that or was was that list of insubordination true insubordination or was it like you were saying you you the definition of insubordination was not they they were punishing things that weren't actually insubordination. Well, it, you know, you ask an excellent question. It's the reason I'm on your podcast because you guys just don't get together to complain. You're really trying to solve something. You're absolutely right. They were not insubordination complaints. One of them was someone who was being disciplined, was, and everything I'm telling you is public. He was called into the sergeant's office, uh, told he sees the sergeant about the hand of something. He said, uh, are you going to write me up? He said, yeah, have a seat. He said, well, if you're going to write me up, I'd rather stand up. And that was he, the ins that was insubordination. Oh, dude, he wrote him up for the underlying, and then tagged him again with insubordination for wow. refusing to sit down. That's some good piling on. Wow. Like, <laughs> you know, and and it was really funny. I think they're they're probably going to wind up dropping it because when I spoke to the person in charge, they were like, "Well, you know, he disobeyed a direct order." And I said, "You know, if if it was in it for me, if it just had to do with me." I would ask you, beg you, I would send you a present to please let me cross-examine that sergeant under oath in a hearing. Because I bet you in about a microsecond, if his ego is that that overinflated, I can get him to explode like a pinata. <laughs> That's pretty much what, what lawyers no do in cross-examination. I'm sorry? That's pretty much what uh, lawyers do in cross-examination. So You know, j challenges authority? Yeah. Watch the candy come out. <laughs> That's right. So how much time, I mean, I, I don't really, I'll freely admit most of my exposure to lawyers is through TV. And of course on TV, they're <laughs> always in the courtroom. It's always Perry Mason, you know, standing in front of the jury, but yeah, Hatch is shaking well, his head at me at the Perry Mason reference. Yeah. All right. I'm going to need it's some of you guys to look that, that, look that up. <laughs> Perry. Well, yeah, exactly. For those of you that are trying to figure out what that is, uh, police cars used to have little bubbles on the top too. Uh, if you're, you know, the biggest disappointment about comparing lawyers to TV lawyers is we're not all that good looking. <laughs> <laughs> Just a select few. He did or mention modern. Perry Mason. I wouldn't call that a looker yeah, no, there. But, you know, but uh, how much time do you actually spend in court or how much is what you what you do is actually, you know, 
No, it's an excellent question. So if we're doing our jobs right, um, we're probably not in court much. Uh, you know, we've represented some catastrophically injured firefighters, police officers, EMTs. Um, and I'm talking about people, one guy who had 27 surgeries, you know, had to give up his career in public safety. And we, we helped him find another one and he's doing okay, but that wasn't his true passion. And that's a sad thing. So, um, we select those cases carefully and it's in everybody's best interest to get those to settle. And I can tell you that, uh, the only people who like litigation are lawyers. So like in that situation, I was just giving the example, I would love, and it might do some good to cross-examine that Sergeant under oath, but that's not what's best for the officer. Because when you talk about a true failure of leadership, I have seen far too many people win their civil service appeals and then face retaliation because, right. you know, the hardest words in the English language are not, I love you. The hardest words in this language are, I was wrong. Right. And when somebody's discipline gets reversed, and I just reversed a massive one, and we're going to see what happens when the, um, when the uh, public safety officer goes back to work. You know, the, they have to walk back in the station, and everybody knows that, hey, you know, you were disciplined by Lieutenant so-and-so, and it got reversed by the Civil Service Board. And, everybody, and what does everybody pile on? Hey, Lieutenant, you know, write me up. I know it'll get reversed or, well, I'm not worried about Lieutenant so-and-so enforcing the rules because it's going to get reversed. And the bottom line, people will complain about the civil service process. And in a lot of agencies, especially in the state of Georgia, there is no appeal process. The problem is if the Lieutenant shouldn't have written them up to start with, we wouldn't be where we are. So it, it doesn't usually end with the, uh, with the appeal. So, Getting back to your question, sometimes it's better to get those things worked out without going to hearings. But the difference between all law firm and a lot of law firms is we're litigators. Right. If you want to take it to trial, then that's just fine. If so, you want to go to a hearing, that's fine. So how how hard you said you know settle, which some people equate to compromise. You know, and firefighters are not necessarily known for compromising. Firefighters, a lot of them stand on principle and stand on it should be this way and it's wrong that it's not this way and how hard is it to get firefighters to to compromise and to take that settlement or to agree that you know it's not ideal but this is what's best for me well that, that's an excellent question we set a a bar and that bar is set with a reality check for for us and from us so what I have found about people in public safety, and I'm sure you'll find an, ex a, an exception here or there, they're incredibly fair people who, you know, they live by feedback. You don't get through a fire academy or a police academy by not accepting good, constructive feedback from your peers and from your instructors, quite frankly, to keep you alive or to be able to save strangers. So sometimes people make mistakes, and then the question is, how should that mistake be dealt with? The ones where somebody's done nothing wrong or the policy is unconstitutional, which I've dealt with, um, or the policy is not what people think it is. You know, most people are fluent in English who are reading these things, but sometimes you wonder. And we've actually had people that had things in their policies that were in direct conflict with what the city charter or the city policy said. Those are easy. We're going to a hearing, and a lot of times they get dropped when we, when we you know, put the, uh, the line in the sand. I'm talking about the ones where somebody is, um, they did something wrong, but the punishment is too severe, or they did something wrong, they were told not to do it, they thought it was the right thing, and you're like, okay, well, you, you knew it was wrong, you did it anyway, right. you got to take your hits for it, what should that hit be, we can argue all you want. And we've had some pretty good success. Um, I represented someone about four or five years ago who was given two days off. Uh, for something that was absolutely ridiculous. And we uh, we said, no, I think you should fight it. So he fought it, and as soon as he said that he wanted a hearing and that he had an attorney and, and everything, um, they reduced it to a written warning. Because I think going back to our original, I think somebody finally had a timeout and said, do we really want to defend this as a two-day suspension? And here's the interesting thing. Like you said, how do you get firefighters to compromise? The guy said, hey, you know, I shouldn't have said it. But I right. wasn't taking two days off. It, and I wrote an article in Police One, and I know it's a police uh, journal, but um, in March, and it was basically 10 ways to avoid litigation. And one of them was, how have we arrived at a position where your first tool of leadership is to take money out of somebody's pocket? 
Why did we get there? Yeah. Other professions laugh at us. You know, I represented a healthcare system with 22,000 employees. When somebody got suspended, it was an event. And those folks may have a week-long orientation. We do on-the-job orientation for firefighters and police for months. If they can't follow direction or if they can't follow a policy or repeatedly people keep getting suspended for a policy, there's something wrong with the policy or there's something wrong with your supervision chain. So hasn't that grown out of the public and their perception of firefighters and police officers as sworn you're out there working for me. And when you screw up, I demand that you be punished. I mean, oh, isn't that where that's know, coming from? I think it's probably a pressure. And uh, you know, I've, I've always said that one of the best resumes for a police chief or a fire chief is somebody who could retire tomorrow. That way they don't have a problem making decisions that might result oh, in the end of their career. That's, that's, that's pretty funny. That's <laughs> very, we've very, said the same things. Yeah. I've yeah. Very, and, and, you know, in getting to that, um, the public has some influence, but I think it's, it's grown a good bit. I mean, I can remember plenty of times, uh, you know, getting complained on. I wasn't always shy and reserved like I am now when I was a street cop, I was kind of outgoing. <laughs> yeah, and I'm you, I we get need complained you to on. open up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll come out of my shell in the second hour. Um, but it was really funny. I can remember one of my sergeants telling me, hey, man, I talked to the guys about this. You know, he was a jerk. You, you probably could have handled a little better. But I told him that, uh, you know, hopefully the next time you guys meet that, you know, you're out here writing tickets because, you know, you've caught this many people last month who were wanted and stuff. And by the end of the phone call, he was OK. Now what we do is, well, I'll take your complaint, sir. And it goes to IA. And I know one metro agency where now every courtesy complaint goes to IA. You know, that's just dumb. Yeah, I mean, you can talk about all you want about the public perception. That's just dumb. Well, and I, I don't think most of our listeners understand. And, and, you know, we here on Combustible, we're all in positions in our department where we have a little bit more of a view into that. But I don't think they understand just how many complaints roll in. Oh, absolutely. The other part of it that I think has, has gotten lost, I mean, you talk about the sworn person. You know, sworn doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. Right. And the fact that they are sworn means that they have a lot of training, means that they've been entrusted by the state with a certain set of duties. And maybe Mr. and Mrs. Smith, when you call up to complain because the firefighters were going too fast through an intersection, you find a polite way to say this. Maybe you don't know what you're talking about. So go back in the den and watch your episode of Blue Bloods. <laughs> And get some more Cheetos so we can do CPR on you when you haven't taken care of yourself. And by the way, you'll really want them to speed through an intersection when they're coming to help you. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's what's missing now. When you talk about how things have changed in public perception, what's missing is people standing up for police officers and firefighters and saying, hey, I understand they made you mad. You know, right. that, that's no reason to uh, that's no reason to jump on somebody. And no, I'm I'm. And think of how, you know, and, and I've read your, your resumes, and it's impressive that you guys are in this type of leadership, but still remember, you haven't, well, clearly you haven't forgotten where you came from. But just imagine how those complaint calls could go if you say, you know, I will talk to them, I understand it, I've tried to explain to you the reason, but if you're looking for me to take pay out of this person's pocket and take groceries out of their children's mouths, let me just help you. It's not going to happen. If you want to complain over my head, I'll give you the name of my supervisor. Yeah. That would end 90% of this. Yeah. So when should a firefighter or one of our listeners that's in the, in public safety, when should they look to you or someone like you to represent them? I mean, at what point is, is two days off worth fighting? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, that's really an individual decision. And one of the things that you guys don't have that the Fraternal Order of Police has, um, they have a salary reimbursement option. So they recognize, let's say somebody was late, they have a reason, but they just, it's not worth fighting. You know, they had a, a dispute with their spouse that morning. They just don't want to tell anybody and they were 20 minutes late to work. So they get two days off. They have a reimbursement option where they'll just pay them back the pay. If they if they don't want to fight it, they'll say, okay, we'll we'll just call it a mulligan and move on. Um, but if you have any intention that what's been done to you is either fair, unfair, or it's illegal, or it's an unfair application of an otherwise normal policy, then you need to get us involved early. 
And I have a blog. Um, it, it should, it's on my website. Um, it's called Frontline Stories. Uh, you can find it on bluelinelawyer.com. But we talk about, I don't need a lawyer yet, do I? And I go through this progression. It's basically over and over again we hear, well, yeah, I got, I got the notice I was going to be disciplined, but I didn't think I needed a lawyer yet. I'll see what they have to say. Well, then they said to go to internal affairs. And I, I sat down with internal affairs, and, yeah, I didn't think I needed a lawyer yet. And then they don't call a lawyer until after they're looking at the, um, the recommendation to terminate them that came out of their appeal hearing. You know, I can do a lot with the illegal, the, um, you know, the inap- the unconstitutional policy, the clear violations, but it's really hard to help you undo the mess you're in. Right. And to give you an example, people ask, oh, what do you do? You know, what do you tell them to do? Well, let's say uh, you get a firefighter who gets suspended for misuse of a piece of equipment. Before we send them in to do an internal affairs interview, we make them sit down with us and show us the policies at issue, go retrieve them. And, you know, it's just us chickens talking. Most people have not read the policy since they were in the academy. Right. So they go back and read the policy, they review it, and then they're prepared for that interview because hopefully the internal affairs investigators have read it. And if the OPS investigators haven't read it, you're going to educate them too. So if nothing else, you may still have a problem with the department and you may still have made a mistake, but what you're presenting is a picture of yourself as the well-trained professional individual, the firefighter that you strive to be every day, who is aware of what proper procedure is and either A, you chose not to follow it because you used the sense God gave you and made a judgment call, which should not be punished, or B, you just made a mistake. That looks very different in front of the chief's office and very different in front of the civil service board than, well, what does the policy say about X, Y, Z? Well, I don't really know. Can you show it to me? Right. So are, are cops better at knowing their policies and procedures than firefighters are in your experience? Not really. No, it depends on the, I, no. I would have thought they were. I would have too. It depends. It depends on the policy and procedure. So, uh, and I'm sure that there's corollaries now. I mean, the, the bravest thing, let me preface this. The bravest thing I did at fire was make sure people didn't dive over your hoses while you were in the building. So that's about the, <laughs> the most that. I can say. Right after you parked uh, in front I'm of the sure hydrant. <laughs> um, I did have a very good friend who allowed me to go through a, a smokehouse, and I even made it through the tight squeeze. Uh, so I was pretty uh. excited. But um, the, the thing that I'll tell you, and, and I don't know the equivalent, but I'm sure there is one. Fire uh, law enforcement officers are going to know their use of deadly force policy. They're going to know their report policies. They're going to know arresting procedures. They're kind of the, if you will, the high liability areas. And I'm sure you're going to find the same thing with firefighters, but that's not what usually gets people jammed up. What usually gets people jammed up is the judgment calls they have to make that no policy could ever address. And you may have, just a difference of opinion as to how something should have been done. And that's why you said, you know, when should firefighters get someone involved? I have, or, you know, will they accept, you know, a compromise? I've seen over and over again, people in my office saying, you know, look, I messed up. You know, I did, I messed up. I did X, Y, Z, but I, they shouldn't take money out of my pocket or come on, man, two weeks off. They gave three days off when another guy on my shift did the same thing. And that's kind of where we fit in because I see our role as holding people responsible who are in leadership and also holding governments responsible. You know, when, and, and I've taught internal affairs investigators before, and I've told them when somebody comes in your office for an IA interview and they're an OPS because there's a complaint, you should start out with the following philosophy. We recruited this person. We accepted them in place of someone else. We had so many hundreds of applicants, and this person took a test and distinguished themselves. This person put up with the late nights and the fatigue and the bruises and the cuts and, and all the nastiness you have to do and all the, uh, the energy you have to expend to get through the basic fire academy. And, you know, they've stuck with us for 10 years of working on their anniversaries not seeing their kids at Christmas, all of these different things. 
we need to find out what happened here, but we need to start with a premise that we hire good people. Hey, Lance, did I cut you off there? No, 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 I, that definitely had me thinking about a few things. And what that, what that speaks to me is, is, uh, maybe the, the forget or there's value in these people and you know, there's value in, and I think it's Absolutely. easy just to, to dis. They're not just X's yeah, on a spreadsheet. Yeah, they're, 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 there's a value there. And what you just described is a, almost a clear alt delete to say, okay, wait just a minute. Uh, and to see the value that's there based on that, what you just did, just, you just described. So I, I appreciate that. And I think that's actually a good, uh, a good reminder for a lot of people, uh, including myself. But I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about the, uh, the person where it was like a two weeks, this got two weeks, but then when you look at other cases, this person got three days, so forth and so on. It sounds like a consistency issue. Um, and do you see problems showing up there? And I've been, I'm going to just walk this through. I've been a little uh, shocked in some of this because I see from the fireside, I don't know police policy, so I don't know how their, their uh, rules and violations go. But for us, we have a clearly defined, um, progressive discipline model. So for someone to finally be getting time off, they've probably already traveled through that violation at the minimum twice, right? Um, potentially three, three times. So that's kind of like two part, but the, the first part is, is I feel like this consistency gets you into an issue. Like you see inconsistent discipline. That yeah. At some point, inconsistency can be seen as a due process violation because you're not treating e people who are similarly situated in the law equally. Now, this is where the progressive discipline policies don't provide enough guidance. And it's really funny. If I could pull a policy out of your manual and say, hey, I could take this policy and I can work a structure fire and you'd go, you dude, you'd be dead in 10 minutes. Just stay on the truck and watch. So nobody accepts that what's in your policy is a how-to on how to do things, and neither is your progressive discipline policy. So there's two problems that you have with progressive discipline. The people that you said, like they've been written up twice for being late, we're never going to hear from them. It's very, very rare that someone says, you know, I was late the third time, and I got two days off, and I want to fight it. Most of the time they're like, is there anything I can do? And, you know – I, maybe I'm a different kind of lawyer. I say, yeah, you know, you can go to Walmart. They sell these things called alarm clocks, and uh, <laughs> Come to they, work they're really time. helpful. Everybody just and, uses and, their phone know, the now. Thing, yeah, well, and the other thing, too, is you can call one of your buddies and say, hey, man, I know you got this part-time job you're working, but um, can you call me when you get ready to go to work to make sure, you know, I'm, I'm moving along? You know, there's, there's a lot of peer support you can tap into. But the problem with the uh, progressive discipline is generally not with the people that accept the punishment because they know they've done it. The problem with progressive discipline is you can't compare violations when the circumstances have a judgment call involved. And when the judgment call has to do with the training that you gave them or the judgment you expect them to have as a professional, you need to step back from it. The other real problem, and, and decide whether it's appropriate or not, the other real problem you have with the progressive discipline model is it's got this out, and I've never read one that didn't have it. These are just guidelines and do not prevent the department from taking a more severe or less severe uh, course of action uh, depending on the individual policy. So I have seen these situations where somebody has been disciplined and there's been um, a complaint. Well, hey, you know, chief, I, I look at the chart and I should have gotten two days off. Well, we thought this was a particularly heinous violation, so we gave you five days off. There's so much interpretation in there, and just just there's a lot of things that go into it, but just as one example, no one who is suffering from post-traumatic stress, not post-traumatic stress disorder, post-traumatic stress is a normal response to horrific circumstances. No one who is suffering from post-traumatic stress is gonna walk into your office and say, hey, chief, uh, it's Tuesday. I'm off for the next two. And then I was thinking of nutting up for the next week. Uh, is that okay with you? Is that going to fit into your schedule? <laughs> you know, so you have people who are dealing with something horrible. Um, and the warning signs from doing this for, you know, law for 21 years and, and public safety for over 30. When you have somebody who goes into a very bad situation right at the end of their shift, that's one of your danger signs because they're not going to get the decompression with their brothers and sisters 
for the rest of the shift or another shift immediately after. That's when they go home. They don't sleep. They don't talk to people about it. They don't want to burden their spouse or it's something they can't talk to their spouse about. So just as a as an overview, a lot of times the progressive discipline policies don't allow for the officer who's going through a divorce, the uh, firefighter whose child is just ill and they can't get any sleep. So they're making stupid mistakes or, you know, the person who's going through a traumatic event, the loss of a loved one or just post-traumatic stress from, you know, seeing a kid uh, horribly injured in a car wreck. Uh, so I think that's sometimes where when people say, well, we're using progressive discipline, that's not enough. If that if that was the case, just like fighting that structure fire, holding your manual in my hand, I could be a fire chief. Right. Shane, I don't want to cut you off. Did you get both answers for your Prabhupada-esque question that you asked there? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not addressing that. <laughs> you had to, you said you had two questions, right? Yeah, but I started rambling on. I don't remember what they were. Well, that's why I called it Pabellesque. <laughs> oh. I'm keeping a tally over here. I've got a little blackboard, so you're good. Hey, uh, Lance, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of probably chiefs' minds just got blown with that correlation you put with progressive discipline versus the judgment call thing. Uh, that that really is kind of eye-opening, I think, for a lot of people to, to look at it in that perspective, you know, especially legally. Um, you know, we have a lot of – because, you know, younger guys getting on the job and things have changed, you know, definitely since the times that we've came on. And one of the prevalences is, you know, cell phones and cell phones are constantly out there and social media. What what do you see as like an issue with social media in, in the fire service? Well, you know, some of it probably ought to be called a social media because that causes just as much problems. Um but I think that uh, some of the things that are being said in a vacuum, or at least people think that um, – you know, it's anonymous. Nothing you say on social media is anonymous, but people have gotten to a point. And if you really want to see it, look at the isolation we're in now and everybody's leaning on social media to, um, you know, to keep up with each other. Um, most of the things that I see with social media are either saying things that are just blatantly stupid. And I have lawyers that represent cities and counties think that I don't sit clients down and say, okay, dude, on a, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the dumbest thing you could do, you were at an 11 that day. Um, but on the other side of that, saying something that makes your supervisor mad does not mean it's disparaging the department. It doesn't mean that it plates the department in a bad light. It doesn't mean that it's bad gossip that's detrimental. Uh, you know, there is a First Amendment right. It's somewhat limited for public safety. But you really run afoul of the Constitution when you start disciplining people because you don't like what they say. But at what point do they, does somebody, somebody who's on social media who has made their page, their, let's say their, per, their profile on social media, their footprint is plastered with them at work, them, who they work for. I mean, they have, they have made no bones about it. And then for whatever reason, whatever their rank is, and let's just make it a company officer at a station level in the fire service. At what point does that free speech start bleeding into you are speaking for the department? If that individual in the current situation that we're in with the coronavirus, if, if a station officer were to get on their Facebook page right now, their personal Facebook page and say, I think this coronavirus thing is bullshit. You shouldn't have to stay in your home. I think you should be able to go and do whatever you want. I don't agree with the county's policies. At Hashtag what, YOLO. Yeah. <laughs> At what point are they no longer speaking freely and, you know, and they are uh, acting as an agent for the department? No, that, that's an excellent question. And, you know, when people wonder how courts come to decisions, the courts wrestle, the Supreme Court wrestled with that exact same decision in what's called the Garcetti decision. So in Garcetti, and I'm sure some of y'all have seen that, you guys have been through enough management classes. Uh, you know, Garcetti was a case where the quest, central question was, was the person speaking as a public employee? Clear, bright line. It's not even bleeding. Clear, bright, bright line. If you are speaking as a public employee, you do not have First Amendment rights. Right. Now let's apply it to the Facebook page that you looked at. I would almost look at it as a scale. So when one side goes up, the other side has to go down. The more you weigh that scale down on one side with I'm a firefighter 
everything I do is firefighting. Everything on my page is related to firefighting. The more your protection starts to lessen on the other side of the scale for the First Amendment, because it's starting to sound a lot like you're speaking like a firefighter. So let's use let's take your scenario and change it just a little bit. Let's say the person has two Facebook pages. One of them is heavily heavily laden with firefighter uh, pictures, with uh, you know all sorts of even memes that are hey you know firefighters are are the ones who respond at three in the morning or you know this is what I learned in the fire academy leadership principles stuff like that. So everything on there is just overflowing with firefighter. Um, uh, I want to say paraphernalia, but that's probably not the best word, culture, firefighter culture. But they have a private Facebook page where all they post is some pictures of their kids. They're not in uniform. They don't say anything about being a firefighter. On the firefighter-based page, they're treading very dangerously when they say anything because it could be interpreted as speaking as a firefighter. On right. the other page, they're probably free and clear. Right Now, you can step in it pretty hard, even on the private page, you know, if you get up there and say, well, I think chief so-and-so, you know, needs to be selling shoes because they suck as a fire chief, that's not going to be productive on any page. Right. But on the firefighter, firefighter culture, culture heavy page, under Garcetti, it's always easy to make that argument. Hey, you weren't giving private speech. You were speaking as a firefighter, and that has no protection. So one of the things that, that we had, uh, Shane and I have actually been looking into this a good bit after coming back from a conference, and one of the, we got our hands on a document that basically was trying to outline the difference between free speech and when you're speaking for your department, and they're, they're kind of, they had a few, I think there were three or four things, but uh, one of them was that if you're sharing information that is only available to you because of your involvement with that organization, in other words, if I'm talking about things that the public knows I can, it's free speech. If I start talking about stuff that only my department knows and that I am now putting out there because of my association with the department, that's where you start getting into this isn't free speech. Is that, do you, do you agree with that or? I think it's a good um, element of the analysis. Uh, you know, lawyers get, lawyers are trained to think about distinctions. I could probably think of a few, but I think from a top down that's probably a good version of the analysis. So let's use COVID as an example. Let's say there's something that's been released by the Department of Public Health only to uh, people who are in public safety. And it says on the top, and we get them in uh, law enforcement all the time, law enforcement only briefing, uh, you know, not to be disseminated to the public. Right. I think it's hard to argue that you're speaking as a, pub, as a private citizen when you disseminate something you only had access to as a, as a public employee. Right. But even if you were talking outside of COVID and, and let's say you're speaking about disciplinary issues with a, an individual within your department and, and information you have about that process, if you're giving out information that or details that aren't available to everybody else, you're, you're running that line of possibly getting yourself in trouble, correct? Yeah, and that's where I had said it's part of the element of the analysis. So we actually had to wind up uh, having a hearing on a case and almost wound up litigating it, litigating it in the courts where an officer said something that was part of an IA record. He found out about it and said something was part of an IA record. The department wrote him up, and I, I said it's public record. And the agency had a policy that if the uh, – they actually admitted this in the hearing – that if the officer's neighbor – said, hey, I want to know what happened in this IA, they would have to give them the entire IA file with some redactions under the law. But if the officer wanted a copy of the IA file and filed an open records request, it would have to go through the chain of command and be approved by the chief. And what we call that in the law, and it's a technical legal term, is unlawful, um, which you can call it whatever you want. And uh, despite your initial admonition, I won't tell you what I said it was when I first heard about it, but the hearing <laughs> officer actually said that the entire county is violating the Georgia Open Records Act. So that's why I said it's an element of the analysis, but if the information that you received is part of public record, then that's where I've gotten crosswise with chiefs and deputy chiefs and uh, city and county attorneys. They say, well, nobody knew about it. So, well, just because nobody knew about it doesn't mean it's not public record. Right. So to kind of be in the, the neighborhood of social media, but not necessarily social media. 
what are the legal dangers of firefighters and police officers and public safety personnel taking pictures on scene, regardless of whether or not they post them to social media? What are those legal dangers of pulling a, a phone out at this point? Because, it, you know, back when we all started, you carried around a disposable camera in the pocket of your turnout coat, you know, and you'd snap something as you, as you, you know, walked up to the scene. But now everybody's got a phone. It's all out there. So why should you be worried about what you're taking pictures of on scene? Sure. Well, first and foremost, there may be a policy that's completely defendable that says you won't take pictures on scene. Okay. And, and that, that becomes an issue because it's probably, you know, lawful to do that. The other problem is this. If you take pictures with your personal phone and those pictures are done, as you said, in the course and scope of your work as a firefighter, especially if you're what we call inside the tape, whether you're a police officer or a firefighter, there's areas you can go the public can't go in response to any emergency. Just name one. Anything Thing, from yeah, a things that are firefighter only, contagion. Things that are only visible to those responders that are truly in the scene. Exactly. Can't, Your phone can't just, see it. Can't see it from the street out front where the rest of the civilians are are standing. Exactly. Your phone just became evidence. How do you mean evidence? It can be seized. So it's subject to public. It's not only subject to seizure as part of the event. It is also subject to disclosure under the Georgia Open Records Act and under a lot of Open Records Acts that we see. So let me tell you how this works. You're like, oh, my God, I've never seen a car split in half like this. We got the guy out. I can't believe we saved him. And you take a couple of pictures. Well, it turns out the guy was DUI, and before he wrecked his car into a telephone pole, he killed two people. Now your picture of that car may be evidence and may be subject to public disclosure because you did that as a public employee. Now that picture is subject to disclosure under the Georgia Open Records Act if the department is asked for pictures relevant to that case and your phone is subject to being searched in an effort to provide that response to the open records. Right. In addition, if somebody sends a subpoena over and says, um, I have a, a news picture of you standing there in turnout gear taking a picture. Um, please provide me a copy of this picture. And you say, no, pound sand. They can do a seizure order to get a cop to get your phone and analyze it. Right. And, and getting back to the younger firefighters, um, first of all, telling them not to be on social media is like screaming at yourself in a closet. It's not productive and it just hurts your ears. The second <laughs> thing is, if you are looking at people's phones that are under 30 and some that are over 30, I have seen some things on clients' cell phones that I wish I could unsee. Right. But people take pictures of stuff sure. that I wouldn't take on a bet. So I've had people who have been like, they are not getting my cell phone. I got pictures of my fill-in-the-blank spouse, boyfriend, uh, spouse and girlfriend, whatever it happens to be, right. and they're not getting my phone. Well, that sounds real good until a superior court judge says, all right, Scooter, your phone or you're spending a few days in jail for contempt. Yeah. So that's the real risk. Now, if you feel a need and it's not a violation of your, uh, your department policy to take pictures, because this is what bothers me about this. There is training uh, material in the things that you see. So when you get to a fire and you're looking at the, a situation where um, there's a teaching moment there, and if you guys are in leadership and I can see some of the books that you guys have put out, you are, you are teachers at heart. You're trainers at heart. You see a picture, you're like, you know, nobody would believe this. I'm going to take a picture of the situation this crew is presented with, and I want to show it to our new recruits. There's training material that's definitely on these scenes. Go back to your disposable camera. Right. Well, and so I used to do open records requests for our department for a while, and I started delving into what is uh, what we would have to retain uh, as far as pictures, and, and it ended up getting into the drone uh, that we were using. And I started getting into the, the idea that if a crime was committed on that scene, let's say it was a fire um, and the crime – is suspected arson that we had to retain all pictures from that scene. Like you were saying, if, if, if somebody took it on their personal phone, it's still evidence. 
and we have to retain that evidence for so many years. And I think if it was a, a fatality on a fire, that the fatality was uh, homicide potentially, we had to retain those pictures for fifty years. Is that familiar to you? Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of exactly what we're talking about. And and take it away from the crime because a lot of people are like, well, you know. That's not every fire. Every time you guys step off a truck, which is one of the reasons why I have tremendous respect for what you all do. Every time you step off the truck, there's a potential to get injured. And your picture that you took could be evidence in a worker's comp case. Oh, so not even criminal. Yeah. I wasn't thinking that way. Well, you know, you, you, how many how many fires have you guys responded to in your careers where, yes, a house burned down, but it was just bad wiring? Well, that's an insurance claim. Yeah. Even if it has nothing to do with fraud, it's a civil case. So, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to safeguard yourself. And if you go back to the disposable camera, you know, it's it's like telling people to go back to, God, what were those things we called for a long time when people had their houses? Uh, landlines. Um, it's like asking people <laughs> to go backwards 50 years. But maybe that disposable camera had a lot of uh, a lot of wisdom in it. Right. So in your book, When Cops Kill, which I read years ago, uh, the the real thing that impressed me uh, reading that was learning the difference between criminal and administrative investigations within your department. Um, so can you explain to our listeners why criminal has to come first and kind of get into maybe Garrity or I know you've already mentioned Garcetti, but Garrity, I think, is the, the, the one that kind of addresses the criminal versus administrative, if I'm remembering correctly. Sure. Uh, late 1960s, uh, the United States Supreme Court was faced with a critical issue that um, they had to resolve. So in a public context, and it's kind of coming full circle, so we talked about people being sworn. In a, uh, and it happened to be police officers, but you know, it, it's not just police officers. So in a uh, public employee employment environment, you had an investigation taking place of misconduct. And the police officers at issue were told, if you don't talk to the criminal investigators, you're fired. And the Supreme Court looked at that and said, if you are telling someone they are going to have to forfeit their employment in exchange for giving statements uh, that they don't otherwise have to give, because, you know, we've all seen Dragnet. Uh, there you go. There's your Perry Mason equivalent, <laughs> Dragnet. Um, you have a right to remain to silent. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Google's going to be going crazy right now. So, um, you know, the, uh, the, the equivalent that you don't have to speak, uh, you know, right to remain silent. You have Fifth Amendment right to say absolutely nothing when criminal investigators walk into a room. So that's what I brought out in When Cops Kill. When a police officer is involved in a use of force, that especially if it results in someone's death, homicide investigators walk in and say, tell me what happens. I don't want to talk to you. There's nothing wrong with that. They have a constitutional right not to do that. So when the Supreme Court looked at that, they said, you know, if you're telling people talk to criminal investigators or be fired, it is no longer a knowing and intelligent waiver and a voluntary waiver of your Fifth Amendment rights, which is what's required by the Miranda warning. You give people warnings and you tell them you don't have to talk to us. There's no crime. There's no penalty if you don't talk to us. Knowing these rights, are you willing to talk to us? So the Supreme Court set down a bright line rule and said, if you condition someone's employment on them speaking to criminal investigators, then what you say, what they say to you cannot be used in a criminal court. So if I sit you down and say, all right, man, uh, you were involved in X, Y, Z. I am ordering you to tell us what happened. And the OPS investigator says that even if the OPS investigator is a law enforcement officer, what you say, with very few exceptions, cannot be used against you in a criminal court. And we did that, the Supreme Court did that for a reason. They said it is more important to the public to learn about the training of officers, to learn about um, why they made the mistakes they made or why they did what they did that weren't mistakes or did your equipment fail? Was there a problem with um, how the equipment was passed out? Was there a problem with your communication system? It's more important to find out kind of the internal review, the, the peer review, if you will, than it is to prosecute someone who's in public service. So that's what set up what's called the parallel investigation model. So if OPS wants to investigate conduct, even if it tends to be on the criminal side, they have to 
order the person to speak, and then that information, with few exceptions, cannot be used in a criminal case. The criminal case is completely different. So you take that firefighter who's accused of, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to come up with a, a, a completely ridiculous example. They're driving a fire truck while they're drunk right. uh, to a scene. So OPS wants to investigate, clearly, but the police want to investigate. So when the police show up and say, hey, have you been drinking? He could say, I'm not talking to you. I'm not saying anything. And the firefighters, uh, OPS comes up and says, we need to talk to you about drinking in this fire truck. He has to answer those questions. So and those, if he doesn't, he can be terminated. Those two investigations can happen at the same time because I, I, in my head, I had figured that criminal had to take place and wrap up before the administrative could proceed. But what they it can sounds take, they can't be mixed, but they can take place simultaneously, okay. but one cannot touch the other. Okay. And it's a judgment call um, which one takes place first. I've seen agencies do it both ways. I've seen them do it at the same time. I have seen some agencies. There's a case in Georgia called uh, Thompson versus the state, uh, which kind of made that bright line, you know, about a football field wide. So some agencies, in order to avoid the, uh, the mix of the two, do the criminal first and then do the internal affairs later. Right. Yeah. I see, uh, in my experience, I see most fire departments do it that way. They allow the criminal to go first because that's what the guys are usually good at is the investigation portion of it. And then they use that to build their case for the administrative side. Okay. Okay. What about when it takes so long for the criminal case to conclude? They usually do I was wait. just about to say that. I mean, you, you, you got you, go ahead. You're reading my mind, and I'll tell you it's a dangerous thing to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you've got a criminal case where they interview uh, your firefighter. and I, Just take a domestic violence case. You interview the firefighter, and it may take weeks to be able to get the, uh, the person on the other side of the domestic violence issue. It may take weeks to get tests back, all sorts of different things. And a lot of departments get very antsy when they've got somebody on paid administrative leave and it should be paid administratively because you don't know whether they did something wrong or not. So you've got them out there for three or four weeks um, or sometimes even longer. I've actually represented law enforcement officers who were on um, non-law enforcement duties for over four years waiting for the criminal case to resolve. Okay. So Lance, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to give you one more question and it kind of flows into that. What advice would you give a firefighter who's under investigation? Number one, take a breath. You worked for this agency. You have built a reputation for yourself. Hopefully it's a very good one. And realize that it's now up to you to prepare for this investigation, to give good statements, and to tell your side of the story. And let them see the professional that you are. And early on, carefully consider whether you should have an attorney present. Now, even if they can't be present, have an attorney giving you advice and helping you prepare because we've done hundreds of these investigations and being able to sit and give you some questions to ponder, maybe even doing some mock questioning to help you prepare is just invaluable. Going it alone is kind of like that neurosurgery at home kit. You might save a lot of money, but the scar is going to be ugly. Right. And like you said before, the put it in a little bit of a firefighter analogy. Don't call somebody like you when the house is 90% involved. You need to be making that phone call when we've still got a chance to, to get to the fire. Yeah. You know, and I recently, I'm, I'm always trying to learn more and more. And I recently learned something about firefighters about the, uh, the certain point at which as leaders, you have to say, get away from the building. And I know that y'all have made those tough calls. Unfortunately, because some things, things are unpredictable. We've lost firefighters because nobody had an opportunity to make that call. And different departments call them different things. But the bottom line, when you have that type of a situation and it's an emergency, that's not the time to start consulting the manual and saying, I wonder if I should, can, you know, I wonder if I should get some help. Right. right. All right. Well, uh, can you tell us real quick about the book that you've got coming out in May? All right, it's called Firefighters in the Hot Seat, and it is a book about OPS or Internal Affairs Investigations specifically designed for firefighters. So this is based on us representing firefighters for the last close to 20 years now, 
um, working with uh, internal affairs investigations, dealing with the intersection of internal affairs and discipline, representing firefighters in disciplinary cases. Uh, and this book is specifically designed to help firefighters understand what happens in the 1% or, or fewer cases where a, a part of your career that you're now having to deal with being under the microscope. So we, we created the book with input from a lot of firefighters. We created the book for firefighters. It's going to be available as an ebook, And also we're shrinking the book down so it will fit in the cargo pocket of your right. 511s. So you'll be able to carry it around the fire station. And we'll have an audio book coming out hopefully soon. So where, It should be out in May. Where, May would, they, where would they get it? On your website? or is it? They like can get it on the website, uh, lancelarussobooks.com. Or they can; it'll be available on Amazon as well, or iTunes. Okay, and uh, I think most of our listeners know that we're based out of Atlanta, and I, you're based out of Atlanta. But you also uh, work as an attorney in other locations, right? Right. I have an office in Columbus. I have an office in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'm also licensed in Arkansas. Outstanding. Why Arkansas? Well, my brother lives there, and I uh, just handled a case out there. You can uh, Google my name and the Arkansas Gazette. It was uh, it was a little intense. Uh, the case is still going on, but uh, okay. yeah, it's, you can give a chance to stand up for first responders in a lot of different places. Okay, outstanding. Well, we really appreciate you taking time. I'm I'm a little bothered. Bill was the only one that got good. Yeah, that was a good question. I think me and Shane never asked a question that was a good question. So I'm going to go off the wall here. And I want to know, if there was a fight between a taco and a grilled cheese, who would win and why? A fight between who? A taco and a grilled cheese. Oh, man. <laughs> this is an you ongoing know, I tell thing. You, here's, here, ongoing no, here, but here's the thing. All right, here's my two cents. There is no melted cheese on a taco unless it's really, really done carefully. And it's hard to beat melted cheese, man. I got to go with the grilled cheese. Okay. See, and you're okay. right because you said that. There is no right or right. <laughs> there, no, there is a right. We jokingly asked this question in the station one day, and I was like, actually, I want to hear the answer. I got some of the best answers I've ever heard from Any this question. fights break out from it? Oh, there's been full-on okay. debates that last hours. All right, well. So, a little off the wall. I know, I know I wasn't going to get a good question on that one, right. but I wanted to go with it. All right, well, Lance, thank you very much for taking time out to join us today. We really appreciate it, and we hope all of our listeners got something, Man, at least one thing. From, big time, I hope. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, you've that, got me. Thanks thinking. for what you all do, and I really appreciate your uh, your leadership. and And if your listeners have not done it, man, you need to go on and look at that list of books because several of them I've read, um, and a couple I'm putting on my reading list. Uh, so it's it's great that you guys are putting that stuff out there. All right. Well, we thank you, and uh, we uh, who knows we might we might be calling you for another follow up. We we tend to get questions uh, from what. What, what our listeners hear. So. Yeah, hopefully we're just calling you to have you on the show. Yeah, not yeah, yeah. Other not, not that. Uh, <laughs> but thanks again. Oh, yeah, but you, oh, no problem. And, you know, if you if you have emails, you could always, uh, questions, you could always email them, and then I can send the answers back. You can read them on the show, or they can go to my website, LaRussoLawFirm.com, and, uh, you know, we can take some questions there. But I'd love to come back on. You guys were great. Thanks for what you do every day. Outstanding. Thank thanks, Thank Lance. You. We hope everybody got something from uh, – at least one thing from uh, listening to Lance. Uh, he's got a definitely unique perspective in being that attorney who has the public safety background. So Absolutely. I, I definitely had a couple of eye-opening moments myself there. Yeah, so me too. Made me pause and think a little bit. Well, I think it's eye-opening for all levels too. I mean, not even just leadership levels. I mean, even firefighters oh, yeah. coming oh, no. in. I mean, there's absolutely. a lot of things that they're not realizing, you know, why there's such a big deal made out of it or right. what that impact is. You know, a lot of them, I want to take a picture and put it on my Facebook page and yeah. people see it. If you're a firefighter and you've got a Facebook page, then some of what he just said was very, very important. applicable. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, know, you need to be paying attention. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, unfortunately, probably everybody in their 30 year career is going to have to have something, you know, where they're going to yeah. get in a little bit of discipline yeah, at and, some point. It's yeah, coming. So just kind of knowing in, in, in the administration makes, has it wrong sometimes too. And that's basically what he was talking about. It's, right. Not only have you possibly made a mistake, they've been making a mistake too. So, I mean, his job is really just trying to make sure those checks and balances are put on both sides. What's right. it's a great, great, great point. Absolutely yeah. great. Yeah. All you know, right. Wasn't well, a whole lot of us doing a, a lot of talking other than asking the questions, but I mean, he was just throwing out, you know, wisdom after wisdom. You yeah. Know, great, great nuggets yeah, for everybody. Yeah. Well, 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 all right. So, uh, we are on Facebook. 
Oh, uh, Pabell texted me a while too. There you go. Ah, yeah, and Pabell <laughs> wasn't able to. He wasn't able to join us today, but uh, we're on Facebook, uh, combustiblethepodcast.com, of course. Uh, we have Twitter, but. We never get hit on Twitter, so we're probably, yeah, we're just shaking our heads on that one. Actually, on this one. You do? I, well, I, I want people to hit us up okay. on their, since I've asked the question now, on on the episode. Okay. In a fight between a taco and a grilled cheese, <laughs> who do you think would win and why? You want that on Twitter or Facebook? Uh, either one. Whatever okay. you feel most comfortable with. Send it to us. I love these answers. Some of the best answers I've ever heard come from this rational. There is no right or wrong. I just want to hear you. Well, I disagree with you on that, but well, that's you. Yeah, but I mean, it's this is grilled cheese all the way. From, yeah, it's from the movie Hot Rod. That's where we got the question, but it's a great question. Uh, but follow us on the uh, on yeah social media. We're on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Amazon, whatever that is, the Echo or Odessa. Odessa. <laughs> Odessa. I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, we have to also thank again our uh, our theme music is the Golden Dogs and True North Records. They're available on uh, CDs and anywhere that you stream music. So thanks again for letting us use that, and we'll catch you next time. Oh, before we sign out to my uh, Twitter is going to be at Hatch CTP uh, at Bill CTP at A S Dobson. No, A Shane and messes up everything. <laughs> No wonder that no one used it. A-Shane. CTP. Yeah, That's why I wrote it down for you that one time. Right. I should have not lost that. <laughs>